0: Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who Who waits on you, be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness' sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. To such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net, Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred." Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Remember Israel, O God. Excuse me, redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. Is that the God we need? Let's pray together. Our Lord, you are the God we need. We are children of mercy. We're the children of the merciful God, the God who declares, I love mercy. We ask that today, You will show us your ways, your aggressive mercy and grace with which you sought us and brought us home on your shoulders rejoicing. We ask that we will leave here today with a deeper, clearer understanding of who you are and what you do, and an understanding of how we can walk with you in this place in a way that brings praise to you and deliverance to your people. That is a, something that only you can supply to us. And so we pray to you for this outcome that you may be glorified and we may be delivered into your glory. We ask this of you For this outcome of you, good shepherd, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Holy Spirit's letter to the Galatians. Push through the pen of the Apostle Paul. I really appreciate the choruses, the hymns that we sang earlier. Jesus, I my cross have taken. The words that we sang together were absolutely so powerful. Such a clear, accurate description of what our God has done for us and what we need to be doing in return in response to his great mercy. As we read Paul's letter to the Galatians, as the Holy Spirit leads us through it, what is happening here in this letter? Paul had gone into the province of Galatia, north-central modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. He had been used by God the Holy Spirit to found several churches in that province. He left that province as he went to do ministry elsewhere. And then word came to him that those churches were being subverted. They were being subverted by, well, we don't understand fully, who these people were, except to know that they were Judaizers. We don't know if they were people who professed faith in Christ, but whose format of doing the Christian life was to continue to embrace the legalism of the book of Leviticus and the Jewish culture, or if they were simply completely Christ deniers. We don't know that fully, but we do know that they have come and they're pulling these people away from the clear truth that God the Holy Spirit had presented to them through the ministry of this apostle. We have already noted in this letter that Paul has answered one of their clear lies about the apostle Paul was to say, oh, he's not a real apostle. He's not an apostle on the same level as Peter and John and these others, the 12. And as we've already seen in Galatians chapter 2 in particular, Paul and Barnabas and Titus, I think I have that right, went up to Jerusalem and officially presented the message that they had been presenting to the three apostles, Peter, John, and James, the half-brother of Jesus. And they fully embraced what had been being pre- preached and presented and taught by Paul and Barnabas. And even Titus, who is with us, being a Greek, was not compelled to be circumcised. And then in the next paragraph of Galatians chapter 2, Peter has actually ca- gone up to Antioch of Syria, where Paul and Barnabas have been doing ministry. There's a tremendous turning there of turning a people to Christ. And Peter comes up and he is ministering there shoulder to shoulder with Paul and Barnabas. He's actually having a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful time. Great time. And Judaizing Christians came from Jerusalem to Antioch of Syria, professing Christians, but they're the format of their walk with God is still drawn from Leviticus, from the what foods you can and can't eat, the length of your sleeves, the tilt of your skull all these extra rules and things that, or even some of the things in the book of it, that we are no longer obligated to. Get. And Peter had been not following those things. And the picture that I have of what took place is they're having a large meeting in a, probably a mansion they're not meeting in a cathedral on the, on the street corner. They're meeting in a home, and they've got a buffet. This is a love feast. They've got a buffet, and Peter has been wonderfully, he's been picking up, He's picks up his plate. Well, there's also now a, an extra buffet table over here, and it was set up by the Judaizers, who uh, is, everything conforms with the book of Leviticus over here. And so Peter picks up his plate, and he's like, mm, uh, 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 "I think I better just take my food off of the, the Levitical buffet." And he has, and even Barnabas starts following him over there. And Peter, excuse me, Paul, publicly rebuked them right in front of the entire gathering. And Peter and Barnabas accepted the rebuke. They accepted that public rebuke. And so the reason for what we find in most of chapter 2 is Paul citing the fact that Peter, the, the leader of the apostles, as he was understood, has fully embraced and even accepted rebuke from Paul. And so Paul is establishing his credentials with the Galatian churches, and he's pulling them in Citing all of this, he's been pulling them back to the message that they had heard and embraced when he came and ministered among them. And last week we began in chapter 3 and we as Paul is hammering the fact the same thing he hammers in the book of in the book of Romans. We move from a standing of condemnation before God. All of humanity left to ourselves We stand condemned before the holy God. And there is not a thing we can do about it. We cannot solve that problem. Because no matter how holy we might become, or imagine ourselves to become, it will never balance off the guilt of our sin. And... That is one of the lies that Satan actually teaches people is that, oh, God kind of looks at it. He puts you on a balanced scale here. The, the, your sins over here and, your, and your, your holy acts over here. And if they want outweigh I've had somebody actually present this to me when I was a kid. And if your good acts outweigh your bad acts, you go to heaven. That is a lie. It is a bald-faced lie. God forgives our sins And what frees the holy God to forgive our sins is that God the Son came in the flesh, true God of true God, true man of true man, Nicene Creed, fully God, fully man, joined together in one person, and as the Lamb of God, he went to the cross and took sin's penalty for us. All of the hell, all the lake of fire due to the human race for an eternity was poured out on him this person of eternal, immeasurable value, and he could pay sin's penalty for all of us in six hours. It was about 9 a.m. when he's nailed to the cross and about 3 3 p.m. when he said, it is finished, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He had gotten it done. What do I need to do? What does the Holy Spirit incentivize me to do? is to abandon my own self-righteousness and cry out to God for mercy, for forgiveness, based on the freedom he now has to grant me that because of what his son did for me on the cross. The gospel, the good news is that Jesus of Nazareth is God come in the flesh and he paid sin's penalty for me. All I need to receive the benefit Having been incited by the Holy Spirit to do it, I reach out an empty hand so that he can give me that gift. That's the mercy of God in action, the mercy of God on the cross, but also mercy of God in my own life. We have been, we prayed just a few minutes ago for people who are not responding to the gospel that God would give them a responsive spirit. That is as much a gift he gives us as what he granted to us on the cross. The one was the gift on the cross. The other is a gift within our own walk on this planet. And so that is where we find a welcome with God. Chapter 3, verse 15, the Apostle Paul continues with his presentation. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men though it is only a man's covenant contract, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. In this I say that the law which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now, there are two major covenants in the that are represented, spoken of in the Old Testament that we can give God... Praise and thanks for. One is the new covenant, which is described in Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31. This is the new covenant I will make with you, says the Lord, not like the covenant on Mount Sinai, which you shattered in every conceivable way. I'm going to make a new covenant with you. I will. I will. I will your sins and iniquities remember no more. It is all on God. All you need to do is receive the benefit. But there is another covenant that that arises from, and that is the Abrahamic covenant disclosed in both Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Genesis 12. God calls this fellow Abraham and says, Abraham, Abraham. I am going to bless you. I'm going to give you a land. And then he describes the land. It is the western third of the Fertile Crescent. It's from the river Euphrates all the way down the uh, western Medi- excuse me, the eastern Mediterranean coast all the way to the Wadi El arish that little uh, ravine that you cross going into. It's not the Nile. It's going into Egypt. It's the western third of the Fertile Crescent, one of the most agriculturally productive places on the planet. I'm going to give this place to you, and I'm going to to give you a land. I'm going to give you a seed. I'm going to give you descendants. Uncountable. He later expands on this in chapter 15. If you can count the number of grains of sand on the seashore, you can count the number of your descendants. If you can count the stars in the heavens, you can count the number of your descendants, and you can't do either one. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a seed. But notice it's seed singular. Now, even in the English language, seed, what's that truckload? It's loaded with seed. Well, you know it is not just one. <laughs> the word seed can be one or it can be a multitude. It can be a lot. The whole wagon load. Seed, land, I'm going to give you a seed. I'm going to give you a blessing. And all the nations of the earth. Will be blessed because of you and what I do through this blessing. But notice, as what Paul is camping on here is seed as of one. Now, who is there is a descendant of Abraham that's going to make it all possible? What's the full Abrahamic blessing? What's the most basic part of it is forgiveness. What do we find in Genesis 15? Abraham had a problem. God promised him a seed. He's married to this woman, Sarah. Abraham, at the time, is about 90, 91 years old. His wife is 10 or 11 years younger than him. And he's sitting there in his tent, and they still don't even have one child. (laughs) And he's sitting there, Lord... It's in the dark. He's in his tent. Lord, he's just in despair. And God says to him, I'm going to give you a seed. If you can count the number of sands, grains of sand on the seashore, the number of stars in heaven, so it will be. And Abram, he had proven by this time, after decades of marriage, he and Sarah, if, they could have, if, they, if he could father a child by Sarah, it would have happened. It hasn't happened. It's going to take God's intervention. And Abram believed God and was counted to him for righteousness. He believed that God could do for him what he had proven that he and Sarah could not do. It's got to take God's intervention. God says, I will intervene. And he believed God to do what he couldn't do that was accounted to him for righteousness in both Galatians and Romans. That is the template from Abraham's life that is set down on us. Left to ourselves, there's no way we can find a welcome with God. But we're not left to ourselves. He gets the job done for us. And we transfer our trust from our own efforts to nothing but the work of Christ on the cross, and suddenly we discover we have a glad welcome with God as of that instant forever. God does what we can't do. And the seed, capital S, singular, Jesus of Nazareth is Abraham's seed, the one who gets the job done. The one who gets the job done that Abraham couldn't get done for himself on any level. He gets the job done. And of course, what is the very first verse of the New Testament? The genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Jesus accomplished for us what we can't do for ourselves. He is the seed that makes God's keeping of all of the Abrahamic covenant, all of it, land, seed, blessing. Possible. If Jesus doesn't do his work, none of it's going to happen. There will be, be no inhabitants of the land, but Jesus isn't their redeemer. It's only those redeemed that will inhabit the land. 3.15, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, a man's contract. Yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. God made a promise, and he doesn't alter the promise. He doesn't alter it, and we sure can't alter it. Oh, by the way, what are these Judaizing Christians trying to do? Alter the covenant. Oh, yeah, God really pats me on the head and says, Oh, you are the best of the best because of the foods I do eat or don't eat. This is a former Pharisee writing this letter who's saying, Gag me. Get out of here. That's not authentic holiness. I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it, even in the human culture. You can't just say, okay, forget that contract I signed. No, that's why you sign it. (coughs) It's an unchangeable thing. Now, to Abraham and his seed, and in my Bible it's capitalized, which it should be, because it's actually pointing to Jesus of Nazareth, that son of Abraham that would fulfill And bring forward the promise. Not Abraham and his seed where the promise is made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was four hundred and thirty years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God by God in Christ. Wait a minute. Even a human contract, you can't change it. Don't tell me what happened 400 plus years later on Mount Sinai adds to or alters that covenant. It doesn't. What was God? Why did God give them all of that format that we find in the Book of Leviticus? This is how you. Here's the layout of the tabernacle you're going to build. Here are the kinds of offerings that you can make. Here's the format for doing them. Here are the approved priests, even the clothing of the priests. All of the. God goes into extreme detail about how they can worship Him in a way that doesn't stink to Him. Why does He do that? They've been surrounded by pagan culture for centuries. They need clarity from God on how to approach him in a way that isn't offensive to him. And that's what's granted to them in the book of Leviticus, in the law of Moses. It doesn't alter or add to in any way the covenant made with Abraham. That Moses' covenant has been set aside as the format, but We still are under the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant is basically the gospel. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later after God's Abraham, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ. That it should make the promise of no effect. The law doesn't set aside the promise of God. And the covenant we have with God through Abraham is a covenant of promise. Come to me with Abraham's faith, and I will give you Abraham's blessing. And the, and the holy God has the freedom to bestow that because the greater seed than Abraham, the seed with the capital S, the Christ got the job done on the cross that gives his holy father the freedom to Forgive. All we need to do is believe, trust in that statement, that promise, and the benefit is ours. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise, it's based on our performance, which will never be good enough, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. And that Abraham, that format that God gave to Abraham is still the format that we walk in. What purpose, then, does the law serve? Well, Paul's saying that doesn't mean the law has no importance. It does. What purpose, then, does the law for, serve? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made... And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. A mediator is a referee. stands between two parties, or more than two parties, setting up the format for the relationship. Well, the law was a temporary format set up on Mount Sinai, from Mount Sinai, as Moses came down with the Ten Commandments, but also all of the rest... That God commanded, as it's found there in the law of Moses. But the law was added because of transgressions. So that we could worship, they could worship God in a format that wasn't uh, annoying and offensive to God. But also, here is, you know what? Ten Commandments. To some of those people, that was actually new information. (laughs) Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't. Are you good at making excuses for yourself? I sure am. That's why we have the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's life, wife, stuff, reputation. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels. The purpose of the law is to drive me to the cross. It shows me my desperate need for mercy. Well, the cross gives God the freedom to bestow mercy. The law was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Why in the world did the Jewish people at the foot of Mount Sinai, they were freaking out. There was a place... Where they were not to cross. If they crossed that, they were to be put to death. They saw the glory of God descend on the mountain. There were angels surrounding the mountain. They are scared to death by what they're seeing in this great exhibit while Moses is on the mountain. And what do they turn to Aaron and say? There's no way Aaron could have survived that. He's not ever coming back. You better do something here to fix this problem. We need a God we can draw close to and worship. And so the golden calf nonsense was. And then, of course, Moses came down with the Ten Commandments. And you know that story. But literally there was angelic glory. They literally saw angels surrounding Mount Sinai. That was intentional by God. He wanted to frighten them. He wanted to frighten them so that they would realize, you know, left to myself, there's no way I can survive standing in the presence of this God. He better do something to protect me. And, oh yes, that Redeemer... That Redeemer is going to do a work that will allow me to step into the presence of the Holy God and not be burned to nothing. Instead, I will be able to survive and thrive in the experience What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator, namely Moses. Now a mediator does not mediate between one only, but God is one. A mediator, God is on the one side and we're on the other. Is the law then against the promises of God? Did God somehow make a mistake that distract? No, not properly understood. Properly understood, the law drives us to the God of mercy, to cry out for mercy. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, Truly, righteousness would have been by the law if God could have just said, oh, yeah, you just jump through these hoops and you just kind of do this. But that wasn't possible. The authentically holy God, his righteousness, his holiness must be satisfied in regard to authentic human sin. That has to be addressed fully, completely. And it was only addressed... When Jesus, God the Son, Jesus of Nazareth, God the Son, went to the cross as the Lamb of God and took upon himself the judgment due to us, giving his Father the freedom to forgive. If the law had been given, if there had been a, if there had been a law given which could have given life truly, righteousness would have been by the law, but it wasn't possible. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ must be given to those who believe. What role do I place, do I occupy in stepping into a place of welcome with God? I simply believe. I simply have faith. And as I've repeated over and over again, the word translated believe, the word translated faith is the same word in the Greek text. It's pistis as the noun and pistuo as the verb. We believe, we, we place our trust in what Christ did and we receive the benefit. We abandon our trust in our own works in favor of his work. And God steps us into a place of welcome with him. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe, who place their trust there. Before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith, which would afterward have been revealed. And most of us, or many of us, even if you, weren't, even if you didn't have the Ten Commandments posted on your, the wall of your house, uh, your, your parents had rules. No matter where you are in the culture, even if you're a guy out on the street, there are rules. The police enforce them. Everybody lives in a format of rules of some kind or another. And we fail them all. But faith, before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, our t- to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith, by trust in the work of Christ. But after faith has come... We are no longer under a tutor. The, law, the purpose of the law was to drive me to Christ once I'm in the arms of Christ. I don't need that format anymore. My new format is the indwelling power, the surrounding power of God and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. The format of my walk in this world changes from law to divine grace. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, as I've noted before, the term in the Greek-Roman-Jewish world in the first century Roman-Greek world was the word son meant heir of the estate. It meant heir of the estate. We become heirs of God, sons worthy of an inheritance having been made worthy by his mercy and grace, we become sons through faith in Christ Jesus. Our sole interaction is trust, faith in the work of Christ, and we suddenly step into the place of being heirs of God. We're not just allowed barely inside the castle gate. We're brought right up to the head table he embraces us in his arms he gladly welcomes us he loves mercy he loves us he loved us so much he sent his son to pay since penalty for us folks even in a million years into eternity our minds and hearts will never fully get wrapped around that reality that's too enormous How much does God love me? He sent his son to endure hell for me on the cross. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You are heirs of him. And that's what that word meant to the Galatians. A full heir in his household. For as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus, united with him, have put on Christ. God looks at us as if we were little Christs. I'm not sure even the word little should belong there. As if we were his son, as if we had lived that life. He took his son's righteousness and attached it to us. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, said God the Father in the hearing of John the Baptist. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He will look at us and say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Not because of our performance, but because of his Son Jesus of Nazareth's performance. Folks, that's immeasurable. That's mind and heart stretching. That's the gospel. For you are all sons of God, heirs of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as were baptized into Christ, united with Christ in the eyes of God, have put on Christ. Everything due to him because of who he is now becomes ours. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Your identity has changed your identity used to be Jew or Greek, Gentile, or slave or free in the Roman world. You could be, a, but if you're a slave in the Roman world, your identity changes. When your master says, I'm taking you out of the, I'm change, change, changing you from a slave to a son, he takes you down to the courthouse and adopts you. You become an heir, you're no longer a slave. In the Roman world, a master literally had the right to take a slave out onto the street and kill him. He was his property. The slave had no legal protection at all. You've gone from being a slave to a son? There's neither slave nor free. There's ne- neither male nor female. Your identity has changed. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Blessing, I will bless you, I will bless you, I will bless you. I'll give you, Abraham, a land, I'll give you a seed, uncountable multitude, and I will bless you and all the nations of the earth through you. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave. And in fact, that was true. A man who had an estate whose legal wife gave birth to a child, that child was not legally his child until he took that child at some point in that child's growing up to the courthouse, and adopted the child. The standard owner of an estate, especially the the wealthier, the more this was the case, they would take their newborn child, boy or girl, and very often the format was to find their, okay, who's my smartest servant slave? Okay, I'm assigning you the task, servant slave, of training my child and how to be a responsible, intelligent adult. So that the day will come when I can take them with confidence to the courthouse and adopt them, because I sure don't want to make an heir of the. I don't want to offer my estate to a knucklehead. The Romans and the Greeks and the Jews—they weren't that dumb. No, if they're a knucklehead, they're not going to be an heir. (laughs) So once you, you, my servant, are sure that they're going to pass my test, you can bring that. Child to me, that boy or girl, and I will quiz them. And if they pass my quiz, my test, I will take them to the courthouse and I will adopt them. They are now a son and heir, whether even if it was a female, the legal term was son. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from the slave. No legal rights at all. Though he is master, potentially the master of all, potentially the inheritor of the entire estate, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. We were under the law. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, Jesus of Nazareth, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. You know, Jesus is the only person ever to walk the planet that actually kept the law. (laughs) He didn't break it one little bit. He kept the law. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons, that we might become full heirs of the estate. Now, as much as we might love that and appreciate that and glory in that and revel in that, ladies and gentlemen, the day is coming when we will truly be shocked when we see the full reality of what that means when we actually do step into heaven's glory, the glory of God's own estate and court. And because you are sons, heirs, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. What is the number, both in Galatians and Ephesians and Romans, what does Paul point to as the absolute number one proof that we have found a welcome with God? We have been born from above. Our spirits have been made alive to God and God the Holy Spirit himself has come to dwell within us. We have become a habitation for God. We are a tabernacle in which God dwells. There could be no more powerful proof that the redeeming God has fully redeemed us and qualified us for heaven's glory and that God the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us, we have been fully, completely cleansed of the guilt of our sin. He has sent forth the spirit of his Son into our your hearts, crying out. And we get to cry out, Abba, Father, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, a person with no rights at all, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. All of the benefits that you understand to go with that term son, heir of the estate, is in fact true for you. Now, do you Galatians really want to step away from that for the knucklehead stuff these people are trying to attract you with? You can't do better than what I just disclosed to you. And the great thing that strengthens our heart is to understand, ladies and gentlemen, it's all on God to bring this to pass. That tiniest of measure by which it would be impossible Upon us, the whole thing would collapse. It's all done by Him. Jesus cried out, "It is finished. It is paid in full. The sin debt of the human race has been paid in full. All we need to is accept to do is accept the benefit. We step into the promised kingdom glory, fully, completely. And all God's people said, "Amen! And hallelujah. All right, our Lord. Whew. The good news, the gospel truly is good news. We ask that you would enable us by the help of your Holy Spirit to keep this understanding alive and thriving in our minds and hearts in the week to come, that you will enable us to walk in the joy that comes from the, which is, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit's presence in our life, the peace that belongs to us, and the love and the peace and the patience, and the gentleness, and the kindness, all that come as fruit of the Spirit to us because of that's all proof to us that the most important thing of all happened, that indeed our Redeemer got the job done, and we have already been dwelling in your embrace. Lord, enable us by your Holy Spirit to walk in that truth, and that as we do that, please enable us to walk by the strength of your Holy Spirit in imitation of you with a spirit of mercy and love and truth governing us in our relationship both with ourselves and with those who are around us and with those with whom we encounter in the week to come. We ask this of you, good shepherd, In your name, King Jesus, we pray, amen.